Значит, вы уж меня извините, в туалете поймаем и, и, и в сортире их замочим, в конце концов. Все, вопрос закрыт окончательно. What you just heard was a comment made by Vladimir Putin in September 1999, before he was even president. Speaking at the very outset of the Second Chechen War, Putin used some interesting wording in describing the extents to which he would go to neutralize threats to Russia. Now, pardon my English, but the phrase more or less translates to waste them in the shithouse, and is an example of Russian criminal slang. But comments like this netted Putin a lot of popularity early on. They made him sound tough, like a man of the people. Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Aaron, and this is part two of our series, Popular Populist. Last time, we tried to answer the question whether or not Putin is popular, and what that popularity even means in Russia's political context. This time, we're turning to our next question. Is Vladimir Putin a populist? Joining us to tackle this question is Brian Taylor. Brian is a professor of political science in the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. He's written three books on Russian politics, The Code of Putinism, State Building in Putin's Russia, and Politics in the Russian Army. We had a great discussion. This was really a fun one, and we hope you enjoy. So, uh... Jumping straight in here, uh, this is the second part of a two-part series called Popular Populist. And in this series, uh, we'll be exploring, as, as may be evident, uh, first, whether Putin's popular. We did that last episode. And this episode, we're going to dedicate to whether Putin may or may not be a populist. Uh, but quickly to jump in, uh, if you could introduce yourself. And I'm also curious, you wrote a book uh, a couple of years back called the code of Putinism about Putin and his team's worldview. Uh, if you could share uh, your research focus and a little bit more about that book, uh, how does Vladimir Putin view the, view the world? Thanks. So I'm a professor of political science at Syracuse University in the Maxwell School, and I work primarily on Russia. The code of Putinism book that came out a couple of years ago was my attempt to provide kind of a collective psychological profile of Team Putin. Putin and the close people around him, many who have been with him for all or um, most of the last 20 years. And the jumping off point is uh, based on Max Weber's distinction um, between the four different motives for human action. So Max Weber was a German sociologist writing about 100 years ago. And he argued that the four basic motives for human action were instrumental rationality, uh, value rationality, or what we can think of more commonly as values or ideas, uh, tradition or habit, and uh, emotions are what he called affect, but we can consider emotions. So based on or analyzing what Putin has said and done and the people around him and talking to experts, mainly in Russia, I highlighted a couple features of what I refer to as the coder mentality of Putin. So in the realm of ideas, it's things like statism, conservatism or illiberalism uh, and anti-Americanism. In the realm of habits or traditions, it's things like order and stability and unity and hypermasculinity. And in the realm of emotions, it's things like the importance of respect feelings of being humiliated by the West, 
uh, feelings of the vulnerability of their political system and those sorts of things. So I come up with a, a group of about 10, 12 things, and then I try and use those to analyze what he's done in terms of uh, internal politics, in terms of economic politics, in terms of foreign policy, and so on. Fascinating, utterly fascinating, uh, both as a political scientist and as a Russia person. Um, but if I could uh, delve further, just to ask, has has that worldview, at least in your research, evolved over his now 20 years in power? So I'm among the group that sees more consistency than change over time. I know this is a hotly debated topic, but the way I argue the case in the book is that sometime around 2003, 2004, we can see the code kind of fully coming into being. That his first term, he was kind of new to ruling and had a different group of people around him, at least partially left over from the Yeltsin era. But we can see uh, by the time of the arrest of Hordakovsky, by the time of Beslan, by the time of the 2004 Orange Revolution in Ukraine, uh, a more consistent sort of mentality or code coming into being. And although the emphasis in the different elements has changed over time and some things have grown stronger, other things have maybe become less important, I, I still see a fairly consistent mentality held by Putin and the people around him. And that mentality has at each step of the road, kind of taken them in a more authoritarian direction, not necessarily because they have an ideological attachment to authoritarianism, but when they're forced to choose between different things, they often choose the one that gives them more control, the one that strengthens the state, the one that makes them think they're keeping Russia more secure, those sorts of things. And that has tended to lead them in a particular direction. Got it. So... Turning to today's meat and potatoes, uh, evaluating whether Putin is a populist. And this was the subject of a Twitter thread, if I remember correctly, a while back that kind of took a lot of folks in the, the Russia specialist community by storm. Uh, being academically serious here, before we can evaluate uh, whether the guy is a populist, I think it uh, bears discussing a little bit what populism is, kind of talking about a framework under which we can evaluate uh, whether Putin fits in. Uh, so if you had to, and this is difficult, it's, there's not a, you know, a dictionary definition here, different strokes for different folks as far as uh, what populism means, but if you had to describe populism, how would you describe it? So I think the core idea of of populism kind of as a political style is that society is divided into two basic groups. These two groups are antagonistic. One group is the elite, which is corrupt. And one group is quote unquote, the people which are pure and good. And so the fundamental sort of moral emphasis in populism is we've got a good elite, uh, or sorry, uh, the opposite of that, we've got a good people, a good common people, and a bad elite. And uh, people who engage in populism try and juxtapose the good common person against the corrupt bad elite. That is what I would see as the basic core of populism as a political style. So zooming in specifically to Russia, I think 
anyone could argue that there certainly is populism in in Russia, in Russia's political system. Um, you look at folks like Navalny, quite arguably, if you look at his economic platform, uh, pretty clear that there are some populist elements in there, especially under that definition. Arguably, um, some of the systemic opposition parties, you know, like LDPR, Zhirinovsky, uh, if you look at the way he talks as sort of the court jester, but it strikes me as an appeal to popular anger, or maybe not necessarily an appeal so much as a, a release valve so it can be channeled without ceding control. Um, but if, from your point of view, uh, are there specificities to populism in Russia? Does it differ from what we're seeing in the West? Is it part of the same global movement or reaction? What would you say to that? I guess I think that to the extent we see populism in Russia, I would want to distinguish it from what we see happening in other countries around the world at the moment. Um, maybe some of the same grievances are, are, are present, but they strike me as very different in the Russian context. So in Russia, I mean, going back to the 19th century, there was a tradition of political actors who called themselves populists, right, who wanted to go out to the people and saw the common people as good and saw the elites as corrupt. Uh, that tradition sort of lost out uh, in the 1917 revolution. Uh, and we see a return of it in the late sort of Soviet period where people like Boris Yeltsin, who I think initially, well, maybe not initially, but after he fell from favor with Gorbachev, used kind of populist kind of rhetoric uh, to help increases popularity in the sort of 90, 91, uh, 92 period where he was siding with the people against the corrupt uh, system that was the Communist Party in the late period of the Soviet Union. I agree with your characterization of Navalny is partially in the populist camp as well as the LDPR, the Liberal Democratic Party, and Zhirinovsky is also sometimes engaging in this populist kind of us versus them. And it's probably worth stressing that populism comes around the world in both left and right wing variants. So a left wing variant that might make sense in the US context, someone might say Bernie Sanders is a left wing populist, where it's the 99% versus the 1%. And the political project is mainly about economic issues. Uh, right wing populists often tend to be nationalist. Uh, so it's the people in the nation and the bad elite are sort of cosmopolitan elites who favor immigrants or they favor homosexuals or they favor some other sort of evil. And so the elites are in cahoots with this sort of non-national you know, national element that needs to be struggled against. So uh, the elites that are under consideration, it might be the political ruling group, but it also might be considered an economic elite or a cultural elite or something like that. So that can get played with. Uh, in the Russian context, just one final point on this, there would seem to be some basis for populist politics just simply based on the high levels of income inequality and high levels of wealth inequality. So in that sense, it would be a fertile ground for uh, a sort of left-wing populist argumentation. But I think the regime would be very wary of that, which is why it's 
hard to articulate it freely in the public discourse in Russia. So related to that, and you talked about kind of a ripeness for left-wing populism, which I absolutely agree with. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I think if I were Putin, I would be worried, and this is maybe not within the scope of today's episode, but uh, would be worried about the Communist Party becoming a real political party someday and using its resources. I think there's a lot of traction that can be gained, but neither here nor there. Um, a difficulty in the discipline is, is fitting Russian politics neatly into left and right. Um, some of the rhetoric kind of comes from each side of that equation. So in within the current Russian, Russian political system, uh, when there are populist appeals, and I think this is where we start transitioning to Putin himself, um, at least in the, the Western conception, would there be more from the right or, or from the left or both? Is it kind of hybrid? Does it, not, uh, does it not fit within our conception of politics? So in terms of populist types of appeals that we see from someone like Putin himself to the extent that he uses them, it's hard to put it on a left-right spectrum. The, the left version of it doesn't sit well in a situation where the number of billionaires in Russia has increased from zero to over 100 during the 20 years that Vladimir Putin is in power. So to claim that he's on the side of the common people against the corrupt billionaires is a hard argument for him to make. Uh, the right-wing version of populism, I think, also is one that he might be wary of using too consistently because, as I noted earlier, right-wing versions of populism often conflate the people with the nation, and Putin is highly aware that Russia is a multinational and multi-confessional country where 80% of the population is ethnic Russians, but that means fully one-fifth of the rest of the population is not ethnically Russian. They might be Tatar or Bashkir or Chechen or Dagestani or some other ethnic or cultural group. So he's been someone who's flirted with Russian nationalism at times, and that has waxed and waned. But I'm one of those who think that nationalism is really not a core part of who Vladimir Putin is as a politician and that he's in fact, quite wary of it. And various times in his career, he's referred to nationalism as a virus or a disease that would undermine Russia from within if it came to the fore. So in that sense, it's hard for him to define himself either as a left-wing or right-wing populist, which is why I think the form of populism, to the extent that he uses it, uh, is more kind of performative than sort of deeply felt. And it's a very simple version of, you know, bad elites and sort of good people. And he's on the side of the good people against uh, what might be defined as a group of elites. So I think, were there ever a segue to uh, our next segments here? Uh, Putin the populists, uh, let's kind of break down, you know, why Putin might be a populist, if you had to make that argument. Yeah, so I'll be perfectly frank at the beginning. I'm one of the people who, in that Twitter discussion that you talked about, made the argument that Putin is not a populist. But let's give uh, the platform for a while to those who said uh, that he was a populist. And I think what they would point to were the ways in which 
he sometimes positions himself against uh, the elites in his rhetoric. So you see this, for example, sometimes in his annual call-in shows where he will be asked a question from some ordinary person, you know, outside of Moscow, complaining about how the sewage system in their village is backing up or something. And that'll give him an opportunity to sort of dress down government officials, you know, and come to the, to the rescue of people and that sort of thing. Um, so we see that in times, I think earlier in his presidency, especially during the first term, he was able to sometimes use this populist move, especially against economic elites. So with the situation with the two main media oligarchs, Gusinski and Berezovsky, um, that were pushed out of the country uh, in 2000 and 2001, and then later with the arrest of Mikhail Hordokovsky in 2003, the head of the state oil company, Yukos, we saw in that period an attempt to frame some of his actions as being uh, against the oligarchs, right, and the need to, quote unquote, eliminate the oligarchs as a class, which, of course, is referring back to Stalin's claim that they were going to eliminate kulaks as a class, kulaks being the term for wealthier peasants uh, in the early 1930s. So I think there was maybe some of that early on, specifically about economic elites, and now we occasionally see it in terms of an, att an opportunity to attack government officials or oligarchs. But he's less able to use that too often now because these are his government officials and, quite frankly, these are his oligarchs now. So to paint himself as on the side of the common person against the bad elites is a tough argument when you've been in power for 20 years. Yeah, I would certainly certainly say as much. Um, two things come to mind. So one of the, the models kind of discussed uh, throughout Russian history kind of as a way of... Uh, I guess characterizing political or political messaging is the, the, the concept of good czar, bad boyers, boyers being the, uh, the elite class, the nobles, you know, under the czarist era. Um, is that something you see, I guess, see Putin using with some frequency? Yeah, I think he does like to use that. We could even maybe see uh, a bit of that in crisis situations, and I know you talked about this in your last episode with Yana Gorokhovskaya about how in crises he often sort of steps back from the center of attention and lets someone else take the lead, and then that uh, individual or agency or whatever can be blamed if things go wrong. I think the other way that the good czar, bad boyers kind of trope uh, might work for him sometimes is outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, even though he himself, of course, comes from St. Petersburg and has lived in Moscow now since the mid-1990s, I still think that there are parts of Russia where this good czar, bad boyers thing might work. I was thinking about an interview that Sergei Ivanov, who's a close associate of Putin, also was in the KJB, also comes uh, from Leningrad, is currently a member of the Security Council, he gave this interview back in 2013 or so where he was talking about how nothing is really produced in Moscow. People in Moscow are just office plankton and bureaucrats and bloggers and service economy people, but they don't actually produce anything. And 
I've traveled around the country a, a lot, and in other places you see they're making high-tech, you know, military gear or nuclear plants or that sort of thing. But Moscow, what do they do there? I don't even get it. And I think that was kind of an example of someone who's a core member of Team Putin trying to sort of play on this Moscow-Petersburg versus the rest of Russia argument. I'm not sure how persuasive that is to people. I think it does sometimes work in the regions, but it's funny coming from people like Putin and Sergei Ivanov, who are, of course, from the Moscow-St. Petersburg elite ruling group. So there's only so far they can go with that argument, I think. I think this is one of those occasions as you talk about this and, you know, I, I, I read rhetoric like that a lot, but it uh, certainly drives home, despite the you know vast differences between Russia and America, that just rhymes so much with, you know, things you hear about real America versus, you know, the coasts or D.C. Um, so uh, interesting, interesting to think about that from that angle as a, as a similarity. Um, as far as oligarchs, just an anecdote. Um, uh, I think you see another example, you know, in the, with those relations um, in one of my favorite genres of video where Putin berates officials, um, oligarchs. And there's a famous one with uh, Deripaska way back mm -hmm. when who had fired some factory workers and Putin just tore into him, made him sign a document uh, that he would no longer fire workers as Deripaska was walking away. Putin asked for his pen back. I was really, I mean, kind of awesome to to, to characterize it directly. Um, but let's now turn to the flip side here. So we've talked about how Putin, you know, these, these appeals uh, against the elites. Um, but you also said that he, he has been in power 20 years. And full disclosure, uh, I was on the same side in this Twitter debate. Why isn't Putin a populist? So from my perspective, this goes back to some of the points I was making at the beginning when I was talking about my book. And I think one of the core pieces of his identity and one of the core pieces of the current ruling group is that they're status and they prioritize building the power of the state, both internally and externally. And they're kind of uncomfortable with the prospect of mass movements, mass protests, that kind of thing. So if we think of populists as people who want to rile up the common people and sort of mobilize them against the elites, I don't think that's something that sits well with Putin and the people around him. I think they'd rather the common person kind of went to sleep rather than got all riled up. So in that sense, there's some paternalism there, but I don't think they want to mobilize that segment of the population. So that's why he can sometimes play on rhetoric that sounds kind of populist from time to time, but his real appeal is about unifying the country uh, in service of building a great Russia, of resisting external threats. So there's patriotism there, there's paternalism, there's statism, and all of those things make it hard to be a credible kind of anti-elite, anti-establishment ruler. Great point. I mean, I, I, I guess I agree with it. Um, but it would be, I think, helpful to also discuss. It sounds, you know, throughout this throughout this discussion, there's there's sort of a balancing act at play. And the term I used uh, in this in this discussion prior was that he's maybe populist in content, but not necessarily in form. Has he successfully balanced 
uh, the content versus the form, the the politics versus the policy. Has that changed over the years? Has, have there been moments where he's been worse at it, better? Um, is that changing today with the crisis, both economically and with COVID? So there are times when he has tried to emphasize more than he would at other times the divisions within society. We saw that sometimes around election moments, for example. So in 2003, so his first run for re-election after being elected in 2000, so 2003-2004 timeframe, and after the arrest of Hordakovsky, he could kind of run on an anti-oligarch agenda. Later in 2007-2008, even though he personally wasn't on the ballot in 2008, but there was this language about sort of civil society, working with our enemies in the West kind of thing. So sometimes he will, in terms of the the form of his arguments, you know, talk about these kind of deviant groups. So at times it's been LGBTQ, you know, at times it's been someone like Pussy Riot, for example, that will be the target, but it's all designed to juxtapose the kind of good conservative spiritual values of the real Russian people with this small kind of deviant capital-based, meaning Moscow-based kind of Western hipsters kind of thing. So I think there are times when that kind of appeal is useful to him, but I don't think it's something that he personally engages in that much. It's more a narrative that's pushed out through various actors on state media rather than it's something that he wants to talk about a lot of the time, because I don't think that's really who he is as a politician, but there are arguments that might resonate with some of his base of support when they hear them in the media. And I think relevant to that, I think it's really important talking about, I think in, in the Western media and in general, there's kind of an assumption that it's you know, Putin single-handedly uh, pulling every single of lever, every single lever of power in Russia by himself. Um, it sounds like the way you're describing it that he's kind of exporting some of the the politicking and populism to to folks in his circle and to the media. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is one of the features of Putin that's kind of curious because I don't think he really thinks of himself as a politician. And I think he's one of those people who thinks that politics is kind of a dirty word kind of thing. So when he first was running for president in 2000, after Yeltsin had resigned and Putin was prime minister and then became acting president, he said in an interview that I'm not going to engage in any debates and I'm not going to you know, debate whether Snickers and Tampax are better than some other brand. He thought of politics as just kind of this dirty sort of advertising game rather than what I see as uh, a platform in which different groups in society try and articulate what they value and sort of orient people around those uh, ideas and material interests. For him, it's all kind of a, a dirty game. And it's probably worth remembering that the one time he had to be directly involved in a campaign that wasn't his own when he was working for Anatoly Subchak in the 1990s in St. Petersburg, he was one of the people that was responsible for Subchak's re-election campaign in 1996, and Subchak lost that election famously, and that's when Putin had to go to Moscow to make his career after that. So I think 
the whole political stuff, he wants to delegate that to other people. He's not a politician. He's a ruler. He's a leader. He's shaping the international order. He's rebuilding the Russian state. And all of this kind of dirty game is something that is better left to parts of the presidential administration, to his allies in the media, maybe to people in United Russia. But it's not something that it's his responsibility to engage in all the time. And would be, I think, fits in with why, assuming that's his worldview, he's no longer formally a part of United Russia, yes? Yeah, I mean, he's always been kind of above party. Although United Russia was created specifically as a pro-Putin vehicle, he doesn't want to present himself as just representing people who vote for United Russia. He's the ruler of all of Russia and of all the Russian people. It's worth so, noting. Sorry. Please continue. Well, it's worth noting that Yeltsin had a similar attitude in the 1990s, although they played with creating various pro presidential political parties in the 1990s. Yeltsin himself never really wanted to join one and put himself at the head of one. And I think there was this sense after the collapse of the Communist Party and the collapse of the Soviet Union that party was kind of a dirty word, even though parties are essential to democratic government, and in some ways they're essential to authoritarian government, it's not something that rulers want to associate with too directly. So Medvedev was put in this position where he sort of had to play a more active role in united Russia, but the other two post-Soviet presidents, Yeltsin and Putin, have tried to use parties but not become a, a party person because they're the representative of everyone and not simply one faction or group. So taking this back, I think on a, on a closing note, uh, taking this back to the code of Putinism and Weber here, uh, it seems like kind of in Putin's formative political experiences, be that the, the uh, fall of the Soviet Union or his experience with, with politics in the 90s, I don't want to say a fear, but there is a certain distaste uh, skepticism of anything remotely chaotic. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? And is that maybe the reason why, in your view, he's not a populist? I completely agree with that assessment. That's one of the things that people stressed to me when I was doing interviews for the book. People would say things like, Vladimir Putin hates revolutions. He even hates the word revolution. He doesn't want to use it. He doesn't believe in spontaneous popular mobilization. He thinks if people are out on the streets, it's because someone tricked them into being there, whether it's an outside actor like the United States or whether it's an internal troublemaker. So that type of what I would consider essential part of democratic politics in terms of not just voting, but making your voice heard in a variety of forums is something that is kind of antithetical to the way he thinks politics should run. And I know in your last episode, you and Yana were talking about the construction of the power vertical, and I think he sees Russian society should in some sense be organized in a similar way in which the state is the dominant actor and the masses are kind of subordinate to that in the interest of building up the strength of Russia, both internally and externally. So he's kind of one of these uh, anti-politics politicians, which has some similarities with populism, but maybe not in the same way that we think of populist movements in the West. Populism with a Russian face, we can say. 
Um, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, this was really fascinating to hear. Um, and we're, it's been great having you. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. Thanks again to Brian for joining, and stay tuned for next episode. Be sure to follow BMB Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Philadelphia. For more information about this and other initiatives, be sure to visit fpri.org. Catch you next time.